You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we have Jonathan Trent. For the past 20 years, he's been a senior research scientist at NASA, conducting research on marine science, microbiology, medicine, nanotechnology, engineering, and environmental sciences. After doing seven TED Talks, he is now leaving NASA to do his own startup called Upcycle System, which accepts wastewater and converts it to renewable assets such as clean water, steam, electricity, gas, and mineral. In this episode, you'll learn, did the U.S. ever land on the moon? What's changed at NASA over the last 20 years? How likely is it that we'll soon go to Mars? What is bioasset recovery? And much more. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Hey, Sean, I'm glad to be here. Can we hear about your time at NASA and all the amazing things that you worked on while you were there? Sure. I've been at NASA all this time in part because I've had such an interesting time there. I've basically done three careers while I was there. You know, I came to NASA in, a, in the context of what they call astrobiology, where astrobiology is the study or the attempt of studying life in the universe. Could there be life in the universe and what might it be like? I had been studying the biochemistry and biology of organisms living in really extreme environments. And so when NASA hired me, they wanted me to do biochemistry about organisms living in weird places, so geothermal hot springs living, you know, at basically boiling sulfuric acid, trying to understand what an organism does to adapt under those conditions. And that fit well their agenda for astrobiology. But I found early on in my career at NASA that they were really excited about engineering. And studying microbes and molecular biology is, I was really doing nanotechnology. I was studying how organisms function on this nanoscale, how things happen on a molecular level. And so I could apply what I was doing on the biology of these extreme organisms to nanotechnology. And I started a nanotechnology group at NASA and worked on that for nine years. And we basically looked at how molecules could use molecular recognition, that is how they knew each other and how they knew other structures, uh, we, under, we tried to understand how they could interact, so molecular recognition, and we used genetic engineering to modify self-assembly in a way that we could build useful devices on a nanoscale. And we did this for a long time. But then about 10 years ago, I started my third part of my NASA career, which was looking at sustainability. How can we apply what we've learned about going to space which is the most resource-limited environment you can imagine, how we could apply that to problems here on Earth. And that's, that sort of brings us up to the startup. But I'm happy to talk more about my NASA career, if you'd like, Sean. Yes, please continue. And also, could you talk a little bit about going to the moon, the history of it, and when are we going to go to Mars? I'm actually really excited about the idea of going to the moon and sending humans to the moon and Mars and Mars exploration, but not for the same reasons that most people are excited about it. So Elon and I would be uh, completely at odds about why we should go to Mars. But 
let me tell you a little bit about the conditions on the moon and on Mars so you have a reason to understand why I'm not that interested in ever sending people there. So you need to understand that on the moon, the daytime, which lasts about 13 and a half Earth days, the temperature at the surface of the moon gets to about 260 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 127 degrees Celsius. And then the following 13 and a half days, the moon's night, the temperature goes down to minus 280 degrees Fahrenheit, or about minus 173 degrees. The atmosphere on the moon is about a few inches, a few centimeters thick. There's no atmosphere on the moon. And if you're in the sun versus in the shadow, the temperature difference can be 200 degrees. So the human body on the, on the moon is really at a loss for survival. But let's talk about Mars, because everybody talks about Mars as though we're going to build a colony there. So you need to understand Mars has an atmosphere. It's about 100 times thinner than the Earth's atmosphere, and it's made up of 95% carbon dioxide. So in contrast, the Earth has about 0.04% carbon dioxide, and we're worried about it because it's going up and it's causing greenhouse gas. But Mars has a little bit of nitrogen in the atmosphere, about 2.7%, so less than 3% nitrogen, whereas the Earth's atmosphere is 78% nitrogen. Now, here's the key. The Martian atmosphere has only trace amounts of oxygen, almost unmeasurable, whereas the Earth's atmosphere is 21% oxygen. It has a tiny bit of CO2. So what does this mean? This means we will never breathe the Martian atmosphere and, of course, we can make oxygen by stripping the oxygen out of the carbon dioxide, which is CO2, and we can take the O2 out of the carbon dioxide. But, you know, in the Earth's atmosphere, we breathe mostly nitrogen. So nitrogen is the carrier gas. So while we can get oxygen from the Martian carbon dioxide, where are we going to put the gas? The gas has to be carried by another gas. And in our case, it's carried by nitrogen. So the Martian atmosphere is really a problem, not only for breathing, but also because it's so thin. What does this mean? This means that the pressure at the surface of Mars is much, much lower, a hundred times lower than the pressure on Earth. What does pressure do? It influences the temperature at which water boils, for example. On the Earth, water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius. On Mars, water boils at about the freezing point on Earth. It boils between 32 degrees and 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So what's body temperature? Body temperature is 98.6, right? 37 degrees Celsius. So our blood, all the liquids in our body exposed to the Martian environment, would boil. We would suffocate because we can't breathe the atmosphere. Our blood would boil. Oh, and then the temperature on Mars, because Mars is considerably farther away from the sun, the sun's radiation is about a third of what it is on the Earth, temperature on Mars, really low. So let's think about this. On summer, around July, the hottest time in summer at noon, the temperature gets up 68 degrees Fahrenheit, gets up to, you know, about 20 degrees Celsius. That's not so bad. But that same night, the temperature will drop to minus 100 degrees. 
So at night on Mars, that's 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about minus 78 degrees Celsius. This is excruciatingly cold. So overall, the average temperature in a year during the day may get up to about 21 degrees Fahrenheit, which is still below freezing. And it's about, on average, somewhere around minus 63 degrees Celsius overall, day, night. So the temperatures and the pressure and the conditions on Mars are really, really difficult to try to make human habitation. So why do I say that I'm incredibly excited about human exploration on Mars and the moon? Because imagining what it would be like to put people in that resource-limited environment, in that place where there's no water and there's no atmosphere to breathe and there's nothing that remotely resembles food, that place where there are no, none of what we can take for granted as what we call ecosystem services, imagining what it must be like to live there means that the resources from the waste products of the humans that go there are more valuable than anything we find on the moon or on Mars. And that process of trying to envision how people would survive in these resource-limited places teaches us a lot about how somehow come to terms with the resource limitations that we're starting to experience on Earth. So you're telling me the excitement for you of Mars and the moon is the difficulty and the challenge to make it actually work. I'm telling you that it's a lesson, it's an object lesson in recycling. It's a way of thinking about a harsh, harsh condition, and it teaches us about conditions that will be available to us here on the earth that we take for granted completely. How has NASA changed over the last 20 years? So, you know, NASA changes a lot during its history. I mean, it goes up and down with the political winds that are blowing. So depending upon the government, NASA will change. But it's an incredible institution. Imagine a place where you can go to work and go down the hall and talk to people who worry about what it's like on the moons of Jupiter or who try to understand what it would be like to have people in permanently in space and what the physiological impact are or what organisms live or could live on the surface of Titan. It's an extraordinary environment to be in and really exciting to be around the people who work at NASA all the time on a day-to-day -day basis. How do people at NASA feel when there's all these naysayers? Yeah, NASA's been basically doing a retrospective looking at what it was like. I have to tell you, it was amazing that we got to the moon in the 1960s. I mean, if you think about it, the cell phone that you have in your pocket has probably a million times the computing power of all the computers that NASA had at its disposal in the 1960s, a million times more powerful. And we got there by just audacity and ingenuity and determination, right? It, it was R&D. It was risk-taking and determination that got us to the moon. And it took us about eight nine years, and there were 400,000 people involved in the process. And it was a big deal to get Apollo to the moon and back. And the maximum budget that NASA had during the Apollo mission was about 4.5% of the federal budget. During all the time I've been at NASA, the budget has been less than 1% of the federal budget. 
And during the last five or six years, it's been less than half of 1% of the federal budget. And yet NASA's been doing remarkable things. I mean, everybody knows about NASA's pictures of the Earth and its exploration of other solar systems and looking for other habitable planets and just the whole discovery of how black holes might be forming and what they might look like and all of the cosmology. This is all done on less than half of 1% of the federal budget in the United States. What about SpaceX? Is there a rivalry there? It's true. Elon and not just Elon, but Bezos and also Branson, all of those billionaires are looking at the possibility of spending their excess money to go into space. Certainly, there's a rivalry there. I find them a little naive in the way they're discussing colonizing Mars, for example, when Elon Musk is talking about bringing 100 people and setting up a city on the Martian surface, he doesn't seem to be taking into consideration some of the things I told you earlier about what it's actually like on Mars, how difficult it is. And I, I was just scratching the surface. I was only talking about the atmosphere and the temperature, but the surface of Mars is covered with toxic chemicals like perchlorate, which is a thousand times the concentration that will poison the human thyroid. And there's nothing that remotely resembles food on the surface of Mars, and nor does it seem possible that we'll ever be able to grow food on Mars. And finding clean water, I mean, water at all on Mars, Mars has been drying for billions of years. I mean, Elon's concept that we want to be exploring beyond the Earth is, is sort of you know, naive. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary to think that we can colonize other planets. But the notion is really almost, almost unthinkable if you really dig into the details. And any engineer will tell you that the devil is in the details. And these details that I'm telling you about that make Mars, Mars an uninhabitable space are just the tip of the iceberg. The radiation fields, the solar energy that's there, it's not a possible scenario in my mind. But as I said... It's wonderful to think about what we can learn by contemplating this being on the surface of Mars. And as far as I'm concerned, the billionaires like George Soros and Bill and Melinda Gates and Bloomberg and Zuckerberg and Gordon and Betty Moore, to mention a few, that are focused on humanitarian uses of their money are far more rational in my world. Somebody like Manoj Bargava, who is five-hour energy, and is giving 99% of his $4 billion to charity. I mean, those are people who are, in my mind, spending their money in a more correct way than trying to contemplate the impossibility of putting people on Mars. And by the way, if you're going to Mars because you want to do the science associated with it, then you really want to send robots there the way NASA's been doing. I mean, we've been sending rovers to Mars since 1997, and that's been an extraordinary. We've learned so much about that planet. I mean, the things that I was telling you, the temperatures I was quoting, those are actual temperatures. We've got the day-night temperatures from the Gale Crater since 2012. And so we actually know what the conditions are like on Mars. We're not just guessing about it. So it's wonderful to learn about Mars, but you'd never put people on the surface of Mars to learn about it. Can you talk about the history of resources in a global aspect, and what should we know now that could help us make decisions? Well, you know, 
One of the things I did while I was at NASA, I was asked to be part of a team of government people under the auspices of the Office of Science, Technology, and Policy. And we, as a group of 44 different people from all the different organizations of the government, that is, you know, the Department of Defense and the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation and NOAA and NASA. And I was the NASA representative. And in this group, we had people even from the CIA. And there were 44 of us, and we were all looking at resources in the year 2030. So we were trying to play scenario games about what will the world be like in the year 2030. And with population growth estimates over 8 billion people by that time, the distribution of resources that we were anticipating and the changes in the climate that are consistent with all the models that are out there, With those data in hand, we were trying to understand what the world would be like. Would there be water wars? Would there be food wars? How much more food and water and energy do we need to maintain the status quo? And it looked like from the models we were looking at, we would need about 35% more food, 45% more water, and 50% more energy to maintain the status quo. And those data and understanding how this is all going to be influenced by population growth, urbanization, affluence, and of course, climate change, we were trying to understand what we could do to change what seemed to be an inevitable problem of running out of resources. And here's where Mars comes in. We were thinking about a planet where resources are completely limiting, and we were trying to understand how we could build a recycling system where human waste become a resource rather than a waste product. And that, I think, is what led me to want to leave NASA. I have to go back to what you mentioned about the environment. There's a lot of people working on it, such as the girl in Europe, Greta Thunberg, and you'd mentioned many billionaires. Would you say their mission is on point or are they missing something? Yeah, so Greta Thunberg is a 16-year-old Swedish girl who's been leading a movement among the youth. And, you know, she's been doing wonderful things and mobilizing a lot of people around the climate problem. And that is definitely a problem. We, we see that as one of the key issues in our future. But it's combined with other problems. That is, the population continues to grow globally. We're at 7.7 billion now. It's suggested that we might get almost to 10 billion by the year 2050. We have this mass movement of people to cities. So urbanization reached 50% already in the year 2012. And it's predicted by 2050, it may be as much as 70% of all people live in cities. That's a supply chain problem. We have a problem which we could call affluence, in which we have a consumer mentality in which our world economies are based on built-in obsolescence or use and discard kind of models. I mean, all of those represent serious issues related to environmental problems. But for me, the crux of the problem is going to come back to what do we need for surviving? And that goes down to the foundation of Maslow's pyramid, food, water, and energy. Of course, we also need shelter. But how are we going to maintain not only the supply chains that provide us with food and water, 
and the energy we need to move them around. But how are we going to maintain the levels of food and water that are needed to maintain this population, keep our urban development going, and help to support this affluence that everybody is moving towards? And that, to me, is the crux of global problems that we need to address. And we need to address those problems with the same kind of audacity and ingenuity that we use to get to the moon that we're using now to think about putting people on Mars. So the United Nations has 17 sustainable goals. What are a few of them that your company is going to work towards? Well, yeah, the sustainability goals, it's called the Sustainable Development Goals from the United Nations. And these are really highfalutin concepts that we're going to, by the year 2030, have no poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being for everybody, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation. We're going to have affordable and clean energy, a decent work and economic growth for everybody. We're going to have industry that is innovative and supports infrastructure, reduced inequalities that is in the economic world. We're going to have sustainable cities. We're going to have responsible consumption and production, climate action to help control our impact on the environment. There's going to be an important focus on life below water so we don't pollute our oceans and our waterways. Life on land will be a focus of our activity. Peace, justice, and strong institutions and partnerships for the goals. So those are the 17 goals. I guess I should have numbered them for you, Sean, but you can look them up on the internet. And what we're focused on has to do with life below water, life on land. We're talking about climate action because what we're proposing has a big influence on the climate. And we're going to reduce inequalities and have a decent work and economic growth. And of course, we're going to have clean water and sanitation and good health and well-being as well as zero hunger. We impact a lot of the goals in what we're proposing. And you had mentioned the distribution of the human population. How has that played a factor on the environment throughout history? And how will that play a factor moving forward? Well, that's a huge question, Sean. So let me give you a not quite huge answer on this. If you look at the distribution of people in the world, and we can do this for, with data we've had for a long, long time. If you look at where the people are in the world right now, and you draw a circle from India on, one, on the west side to Japan on the east side to Mongolia or northern China, and then in the south Indonesia, that circle represents about one quarter of the inhabitable space on the earth. And yet, for the last thousand, even the last 2,000 years, over half of the world's population has lived inside that circle. Right now, about 51% of the people in the world live inside that circle. The U.S. is only 4.3% of the world's population. But that circle that I described to you is 51%. So you could ask, so why are there so many people in that circle? And why have there always been so many people inside that circle? And the answer is the Tibetan Plateau, the Himalayas, this huge mountain range that has glaciers, hundreds of glaciers. And what does this mean? 
It means as those glaciers melt, they provide fresh water and topsoil to the Indus Valley, to the Ganges, to the Mekong Delta, to the Yangtze River, to the Yellow River. They represent food, water, and energy for that whole region. And that region has been so successful for so many years because of this massive amount of water stored in glaciers. And one could argue, then, that the most devastating, the most dangerous, and the most threatening aspect of climate change is that the Tibetan plateau is melting. And we're not sure from the models when it's going to disappear, but the predictions are that it will dwindle significantly in the coming years. And what happens when people run out of food, water, and energy? They leave. They migrate. We know this. We've seen this happening right now with Syria, where there's been a 10-year drought that led to a civil war that led to mass emigration into Europe and destabilization of European governments, right-wing movements, and concern about immigration. And here in the United States right now, we're having big discussions about immigration. So this is happening due to climate change, and we look to the future as a time when there's going to be a reshuffling of huge numbers of people, and we need to be ready for this. And I think it's going to all boil down to this question of food, water, and energy security. So right now in that area, that geographic area you'd mentioned, if food, water, shelter became an issue, is there the technology right now to replenish it so that people don't have to migrate? Yeah, exactly right. The food, water, and energy problem is really the issue. And what I've decided to do, and the reason I'm leaving NASA, is to focus on how we can optimize this technology around food, water, and energy. And it can be in Asia. It can be anywhere in the world. The system that we've designed, which we're calling upcycle systems, involves taking advantage of the waste from animals. If we look now at the earth, it's 29% land and 71% water. But if we only look at the land, then it's about 71% of our land on the earth is usable. 19 20% of it's barren and about 10% of it's frozen. Of the 71% of usable land, 50% of it is already in agriculture. About 37% is left in forests. About 11% is scrub. 1% is covered by fresh water. And about 1% to 3% is covered by cities. Now, what's interesting is that if you look at the agricultural land, about 77% of our agricultural land, three quarters of it, is dedicated to growing livestock. Now, some of this land can't be used for any other thing than livestock, but only 23% of our agricultural land is used for growing crops. Now, of the 77% that's used for livestock, the livestock are only providing about a third of our protein and about a fifth of our calories. So why is this interesting? It's interesting because the livestock are on these huge grasslands. In the United States, about 41% of all the land is used for grazing cattle. And there are huge areas that are now used for having concentrations of animals, dairies or feedlots. People don't realize this, but there are now 19 billion chickens in the world with a life expectancy of 45 to 60 days. It's a huge number of animals. There are an additional 6 billion cows and pigs and goats and sheep. So we're looking at massive numbers of animals. And what we're not taking into account is the huge amount of waste that they're producing. 
So we're feeding them 40% of our grain. We're using about 80% of our water to grow the agricultural crops that are supporting them as well as us. And they use about a third of our energy. So what can we use from these animals that will help us to improve the security of water, food, and energy? And the answer is that we use their manure. We use their waste. Now, you need to understand that in order to make food, we're growing these animals and we're feeding them. It takes about 8 to 10, even 20 kilograms of feed to make one kilogram of beef. It takes about four kilos of feed to make a kilo of pork, but it only takes about two kilos of feed to make a kilo of chicken. Now, we also eat fish and shrimps and other aquatic animals, and they're much better. If you look at tiger prawns, it takes less than two kilos of feed to make a kilo of tiger prawns, and it takes 1.4 kilos of feed to make a kilo of Atlantic salmon. So what we're proposing is to combine aquaculture and livestock. Let's hear about the startup right now. You've got me curious. Okay, great. So what we've envisioned is building a circular system. And how does this work? Well, we take the manure from animals, which we well know can be made into fertilizer. But in addition to using it for making fertilizer, we put it into what's called an anaerobic digester. This has been known for a really long time because anaerobic digesters, if you put manure in them or other organic materials, they can be used to make biogas, which is methane. And methane can be burned to make electricity and heat. But that anaerobic digester and burning of biogas makes a greenhouse gas called carbon dioxide. Now, we can use the carbon dioxide and the fertilizer that's made from the anaerobic digester and fertilizer, we can use that to grow the fastest growing plant on the planet, which is microalgae. Now, microalgae are interesting for a number of reasons. A, they're really fast growing. B, they're the most efficient plant in the world. And C, they make a substance called omega-3. It's a fatty acid that we need to eat in our diets. So what do we do with the algae? We feed that back to our animals. If you feed algae to cows, they put omega-3 in their milk. If you feed it to chickens, they put omega-3 in their eggs. If you feed it to pigs, they change the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, making the meat of pigs more wholesome for us to eat. We can also use the algae to make feed and oxygen to support aquaculture. And the waste products from the aquaculture go back to feed algae. So we've seen I've made a loop. People have known for a long time that you can make manure into fertilizer and you can use manure to make biogas and that you can get the biogas to grow, biogas and the CO2 to grow algae with fertilizer from the manure. We've known this for a long time. But what Upcycle System is going to do is it's going to use what we call augmented intelligence to understand and maintain the complexity of this system. Augmented intelligence is going to include sensors on all the different components of the system and that will allow us to do data mining and machine learning and decision intelligence. We're going to be able to put together a business intelligence along with these artificial intelligence to build a system that we think we can master even though it's so complex. So can you talk about the revenue model of your company? 
Absolutely. Let me, let me try to clarify this again. So we're going to look at the waste products from animals. And rather than going into a fertilizer-only pathway, we're going to go into an energy pathway. And what Upcycle is going to be doing is helping to design the system. And then we oversee the system using the sensors and the augmented intelligence that includes artificial intelligence and data mining. So in our business model, what we're doing is we have an eight-step process with four phases. And in that eight steps, we separate out identifying sites, identifying people. We look at the environment. We look at the engineering. We look at the social aspects. And we help to create. It's a bit like the model of industrial symbiosis. And we're calling it upcycle systems or UCS symbiosis. And within this we're building these teams of people that are going to work together or for one part of the system are going to be resources for another part of the system. And we, as a company, are going to oversee this process using augmented intelligence and provide information to each of the members of our symbiosis. And this technology that you're talking about, how much of it is in development right now? How much of it has existed before? And also, I have to ask, decision intelligence. Can you talk more about that? Oh, great. Okay. So first of all, the good news is, is that all the different parts of this technology are already known. So we know how we can take manure and turn it into biogas and fertilizer. People have been doing this for a long time. We know that we can take the, the residual material in the anaerobic digester from making the biogas and use it as a fertilizer. We know that we can take CO2 and grow algae with fertilizer. So long story short, we know how to do all the parts of this. We include within the system the food component coming out of our livestock and the aquaculture, and that will be within our business model. And we include the algae component, which is a feed component of our system. And you know that number one cost in aquaculture and in agriculture for animals is often the feed. And we'll be able to supplement the feed in a way that will save money. And we have a water component in our system also, where we're purifying the water in the system. So you asked about decision intelligence. Decision intelligence is where we take the expertise of local people who've been experienced in these different fields that we're bringing together and use their archived information to help people just starting out in the field. So we don't just use sensors and data collection and data mining. We also use data from people who are experienced in these areas, and that we call decision intelligence. So I'm trying to visualize the future right now when your company is successful. What will happen then to livestock farms? What will happen to big corporations that right now are investing in meat packaging or environmental waste. How is your system, your project, going to affect what's already established? Yes, this is an important question. A huge amount of the agricultural industry is focused on livestock right now. Aquaculture is a huge industry, not so huge in the United States, but in Asia. And what we're looking at is how do we mobilize the waste from that part of the food industry so that we can make energy, 
And we can use that energy both to clean water and we can use that energy and the consequences of making that energy, the carbon dioxide and the fertilizer that are byproducts. How can we use that to grow microalgae that become part of the feed pathway for our animals and our aquaculture? So the future will mean that individual farmers and individual aquaculturists, individual algae cultivators, or anaerobic digester companies, or water purification activities, or fertilizer makers, they will in fact form these collectives and work together so that the waste products from one part of their system will become a resource for another part, and it won't be a liability, it will be another one of their assets. So we see this as being an inevitable part of how we're going to move towards a circular economy, how we're going to move the economics of the world towards a sustainable circular system. Can you talk more about the economy based on waste and what is creative reuse? So it's been said that if we can't, if a particular substance or product can't be reduced, reused, repaired, rebuilt, refurbished, refinished, resold, recycled, or composted, then it should be restricted, redesigned, or removed from production. Pete Seeger said that. And I think that's kind of cool to think about. That if something is really a linear process, or something is a product that is meant to be thrown away, in a world where we now recognize that there is no away, if something can't be repurposed or reused, or repaired or rebuilt or refurbished or refinished or resold, then we really should think hard about whether we should allow that product to enter our ecosystem that we're trying to create, our circular ecosystem, where we're going to no longer be focused on an economy based on obsolescence or an economy based on fashion, moving away from this idea of a new, new thing or something that's new is necessarily better and that something is old is going to have to be discarded. You know, the Europeans are really getting into this much more than I see in the United States. I was at a conference in Helsinki in June. It was called the World Circular Economic Forum. And people were talking about reusing and repurposing everything. We were even talking about how clothes in your closet can be reused. If you haven't used them for a couple of months, you could lease them to somebody else. And they could be used by somebody else while you weren't using them anyway. And you would get then some, you know, compensation for letting them use your old clothes. Or we could recycle the clothes and not only the clothes and the cloth, but also the ink in the clothes. And it was a really interesting discussion about how products would no longer be purchased, but they would sort of be leased. And when you were done with their use, or they became a little bit old fashioned, you turn them back to their manufacturer who would then upgrade them and reuse all of the usable components rather than trashing them. How would this catch on in your mind? Well, you know, we talked a lot about this at this conference. And of course, you know, buttons can last for a really long time and there's no reason to discard those. And even the fabrics, while they may get threadbare after a period of time, can be reused as, and reprocessed for all kinds of other purposes. That science of that will be the focus of future economics. And that helps to build a more sustainable system. 
Remember we talked about when we were discussing Mars? I mean, Mars, there are no resources to come from the environment. Almost nothing is provided by the Martian environment. And so the waste products from the humans become really, really valuable. Even though they've been used many times, it's always a question of how can our ingenuity imagine a second purpose, imagine repurposing or reusing some aspect of what we have in that environment. You know, I've been thinking a lot about re-engineering our social concepts about some of these things. Rather than thinking of clothes being old and looking tattered, I mean, it's not uncommon to see people with holes in their jeans now as a fashion statement. But what if we put a, an electronic counter on somebody's clothes and it said how many times they've worn that same item? Maybe we'd be able to give kudos to people that they've worn something 150 times or 1,000 times rather than give, you know, criticizing them for wearing the same clothes day in and day out. I could imagine that my social credibility score goes up a certain notch for wearing something 100, 200 times. Why not? And if we could do such a thing, then the use of our fashion changes. Our notion of fashion moves towards the idea that you're reusing things. I mean, it hasn't been that long ago where people were sewed into their clothes and they wore the same clothes day in and day out and year in and year out. And there was never an issue about wearing new things all the time. And in terms of resource partitioning, that would be an important evolution. And Jonathan, if anyone wants to contact you and find out more, what is the best way to do it? So right now, the best way to get in touch with me is to look up my LinkedIn profile, where I've described a number, in a number of articles and posts how Upcycle Systems works. And you can go to the website and there'll be a place you can put information in. We will have both those in the show notes. So once again, Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. I also want to thank Victor Wong, who's the founder chairman of Silicon Valley. He's the one that made the introduction to Jonathan that allowed today's interview to happen. So once again, thank him. And Jonathan, thank you for your time. And we look forward to having you on the show in the future. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.